Thanks for joining Impact Boom. On this episode... We often talk about the need for young people to be gritty and to be resilient. And I think entrepreneurship as a vehicle provides this incredible lens for young people to flex that muscle and learn to Mm. be gritty and resilient through that. But perhaps the one part that we don't necessarily set students up for, particularly well throughout traditional education system, is actually building their failure fitness. Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 254 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Nicole Dyson. Nicole is a globally recognized expert and practitioner in project-based learning and student entrepreneurship. As a teacher in the USA, UK, and Australia, as well as a head of department and head of year at some of Queensland's top performing public schools, Nicole has repeatedly led the design and implementation of whole school changes to support future-ready learning, placing young people at the forefront of co-designing contextually relevant learning experiences. She's the founder of Future Anything, an award-winning, curriculum-aligned entrepreneurship program for high school students and the founder of YouthX, Australia's only startup accelerator program for school-aged entrepreneurs. She's also recently launched Catapult Cards, a fun design thinking tool that unlocks creativity, catalyzes collaboration, and launches innovative, scalable, and sustainable ideas that fly. Nicole is a contributor to the Foundation for Young Australians' YLab program, has represented Australia as a delegate for the G20 Young Entrepreneurs Alliance, which was held in Argentina in 2018, and was a finalist in the 2019 Business News Australia Young Entrepreneur Awards. Nicole is an engaging and skilled facilitator, panelist and speaker who is a passionate advocate for equity, the future of education and empowering young people to bend the future one youth-led idea at a time. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Nicole's insights into the future of education. We'll also talk about opportunities for educators and students to create impact alongside a bunch of other conversation that we will no doubt delve into. So Nicole, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. There's nothing better than listening to your bio read out, right? Like, oh, I love it. <laughs> it definitely does. I, I sort of, when I hear my bio, I cringe in the corner and cringe. then sort of jump on stage. Yeah. But it yeah. is what it is. It's, it's a good bio, Nick. Yeah, thank you. But look, there, there is nothing more cringeworthy than listening to your bio. But look, it's great to be here, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to have the opportunity to chat all things sort of education, innovation and entrepreneurship. Thanks, Nick. So look, let's jump straight in. Let's talk a little bit about your background and what led you to your passion in education and entrepreneurship. Oh, look, 
Such a great question, but I wish that I could say that from day dot, I was always going to be a teacher or that I had some fundamental experience in school that led me to, to always see myself in that role. But for me, it just wasn't the case. I was like a swimmer as a young person and really involved in sport as a kid. And I was a scholarship kid at a private school and as the eldest of five kids, I guess mm. I felt a lot of pressure to go to university when I finished school, but if I reflect back, I don't know that I was entirely sure what I was going to study when I left. So like many young people, when they're in school, I, I genuinely had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah. But I knew that I needed to look at university as an option. And so I jumped out of school and started sort of a Bachelor of Science, hoping to sort of have a, a broad experience that might maybe shape next steps for me mm. and hated it. <laughs> and then... Switched degrees and jumped into a Bachelor of Applied Science. Yep. For the record, not that different to a Bachelor of Science. <laughs> um, and hated that too. So I kind of did what every young person does when they're a little bit lost and confused. I packed a bag and went overseas. Mm. And it was my experience overseas working as a swimming coach for the London Masters team in the UK and then also directing swimming programs at summer camps in the States that had me question maybe teaching might be a role for me. I was working with young people in America and I realized that I got so much joy out of seeing young people do something that they didn't think they could do mm. before. And so I came back to Australia and studied teaching and then found myself in my first teaching job in Caboolture, working in a, a really complex school with young people who were multi-generational dependency on welfare and quite disenfranchised from education as a system that might support them. Yeah. And all of these montages around what teaching was supposed to look like in the classroom crumbled before me. Mm. And it was really hard. Like I would come home and I would cry. My partner at the time would be booting me out the door at 8.15 saying mm. it's a 30-minute drive and school starts at 8.45. You need to leave now. And I found that everything I thought I was going to do in the classroom just wasn't possible when young people didn't want to be there. Yeah. And so I found myself questioning constantly, well, what was the purpose for this classroom experience? And how can I create a space where the young people that are in front of me can buy into that purpose mm. and see that this could be a place for them that might help them grow and might help them achieve and might support them and also might be a safe space for them to be themselves yeah. as well. And look, in that experience, I found myself sitting in sort of head of year and roles where I was responsible for pastoral care programs, a lot of the time with, you know, at-risk young people who were clinging to the fringes of education. Yeah. And in that experience, I started questioning why I was spending so much time writing re-engagement programs for young people when maybe if we got the classroom experience right for them, I wouldn't have to try and tap them in through extracurricular programs. Mm. They would actually be brought in to the learning in the classroom. And so... That was the first problem I guess I noticed was that there were young people sitting in front of me who didn't think that this learning offered them anything. And so the problem I wanted to solve was how can I create a really tangible, explicit link between learning in the classroom and life outside the school gates. And so I started playing with curriculum and using the national curriculum that we have, but I guess changing the modality that students would experience that. So, And the first sort of unit I did that with was we were looking at Indigenous representations in text, a pretty common Year 9 English unit, yeah. and the task for the students was to do a monologue at the end. Instead of doing that monologue, we actually used these Indigenous representations in text as a stimulus to explore marginalised groups in society. Mm. 
And then from there, we tasked the students with choosing a marginalised group that they felt a connection to and then devising their own social enterprise that closed the gap or a gap that existed for that marginalised group. Mm. It ticked all the curriculum boxes that it needed to, but the level of engagement that was there for young people, not only learning about a problem, but actually having the space and support to do something about it, I saw these kids flourish in that experience. And from there, it's kind of grown. And so we started with 100 students in one school five years ago, and now we're working with 4,500 students in 50 schools around the country. And across the course of a term, young people look at problems that matter to them. And then by the end of that 10 weeks, they're pitching their own innovative, scalable and sustainable business solutions that make their world a better place. Mm, That's fantastic. And you're doing that as founder and CEO at Future Anything, right? So... Tell us a little bit more. I mean, it feels like I can understand a bit more about your purpose now. And tell us a bit more about these projects that you're involved in then. This is 10 weeks you're talking about. Yeah. So I think for me, I'm an educator first and an entrepreneur second. So I wanted to create a program that would add value to the education system and also be an equitable opportunity that all students can tap into. Mm. I think the challenge for some programs that are run in schools that are run as extracurricular workshops or bolt-ons is that the fortunate few get access to that opportunity but the masses don't get the opportunity to tap into those experiences. Or we embed them in programs or subjects like business or entrepreneurship where you've already got a group of young people who think they're interested in this. But what that doesn't do is provide an opportunity for a whole host of other young people to try and test to see whether they might be interested in it. Mm. So primarily in, in our future anything, I guess, scope is we run those in curriculum programs. And it's sort of in three parts, I guess. The first part is the capacity building of the educators. Because if you don't have confident teachers, you won't have engaging curriculum. And that's just the cornerstone of building that culture within a school of innovation is having that staff member or the team of staff really confident in that space. So we do a lot of coaching with teachers. We then build fully resourced curriculum units for those staff to roll out in their classrooms. But we're not plug and play. We stand next to those teachers and work with them to contextualize that curriculum for their learners. And then the third part of the program is, well, I found when I was a classroom teacher and I'd build these amazing units of work, I might have these kids that are super psyched on their ideas at the end of the program, but what do they do with it at the end? And so that was the problem that we would encounter is that as a classroom educator, I'm then moving on to the next unit of work. I don't necessarily have the time or the bandwidth to devote to supporting those students to take their ideas beyond that classroom experience. So the third part of our sort of Future Anything program is post-program opportunities for young people to access the funding and support to actually launch their ideas out of the classroom and in the real world. Mm. And we do that through a national competition at the end of the program. And we've also built YouthX, which is an accelerator program for even beyond that competition for really eager students to access 12 months of mentorship and support to scale that idea after they've launched. So again, I think, you know, going back to the original question about sort of what led me to that passion in education and entrepreneurship, in some ways, it's just been stumbling into a problem and then devising a solution that solves it. The first problem was that learning didn't link to life. So we created curriculum that did. The second problem was that we had these excited young people that had nowhere to go with their ideas. So we solved that problem by developing YouthX. And then Catapult Cards, our most, I guess, recent venture has come about by working with teachers in the classroom and seeing educators struggle to get young people to ideate solutions. 
our current education system is kind of set up in the sense that young people sit in the classroom and the teacher asks a question and there's normally one right answer to that question. Yeah. We don't sort of train young people to flex that creativity that as a muscle. Mm. And so Catapult Cards was designed to solve two problems. One, it's a series of prompts that enables the cultural conditions for creativity in the classroom. But secondly, we've built it as a social enterprise where 50% of the profits from the kits go back to creating basically a bucket of cash for young people to access to fund their ideas Mm. because we were having all these young people come through from a diverse range of backgrounds who had these killer ideas but just couldn't access that small bit of funding they needed to have a crack at it. So Catapult Cards will actually fund those young people getting access to maybe a particular product or a particular service or mentoring that they need to actually see that idea into fruition. There's some great initiatives there, Nick. And, you know, obviously a lot of experience and learnings as you've worked through and and developed solutions to those problems. So what advice then would you be giving to the teachers or principals or educators who are interested in implementing design thinking or social entrepreneurship education in their school to help students take their idea and turn it into reality? I think the first cornerstone piece of advice that I would give is create the time and space for your teaching teams to access support to do that. Mm. I think we often expect a lot of our educators. We expect in this, the future of work is evolving at a rate that we've never seen before. And we have an expectation that our educators in the classroom are able to evolve at that pace without access to the professional learning and the capacity building in order to remodel what education looks like in the classroom to meet the needs outside of the classroom. So, you know, there's a multitude of of providers out there that whose core business is to build capacity of educators to think innovatively about curriculum and entrepreneurship. And also within the startup ecosystem, a plethora of providers in that space who are just jumping at the bit to get into schools and show them the potential of entrepreneurship as a potential career choice. Mm. So firstly take the time and space and put some funding into building the capacity of your teaching team. And then secondly, like look to your local ecosystem and see who's available and keen and eager to come in and work with your students and work with your staff to do that. Yeah, great advice there, Nick. So are there any fundamental ingredients then that you believe are required to create this sort of collaborative and innovative learning environment in schools? Like you're talking about providing that space and time for teachers to really nut into that and and get the support. But what are those ingredients that are really needed beyond that? Such a great question. I think we often talk about the need for young people to be gritty and to be resilient. And I think entrepreneurship as a vehicle provides this incredible lens for young people to flex that muscle and learn to Mm. be gritty and resilient through that. But perhaps the one part that we don't necessarily set students up for, particularly well throughout traditional education system, is actually building their failure fitness. In many cases, in many classrooms, young person sits as an empty vessel in the classroom and absorbs the information that they need to. And then they're marked on their ability to regurgitate that information in the right order back to the educator. That piece of work is then marked and then it's not spoken of again. Traditional assessment isn't iterative necessarily, although there might be a draft that's submitted for feedback. There isn't that ability for students to fail in a safe space and then learn to take feedback on and iterate from that. So I would say that one of the 
cornerstone cultural conditions to set up in any school to create that space for innovation and entrepreneurship and creativity is how are we explicitly building the failure fitness of our young people? Mm. How are we creating really tangible opportunities for young people to get up, try something, and then if it sucks, which, you know what, most of the time, the first time it does, how do we then support those young people to seek feedback, process feedback, iterate on the task, and then present it again? Mm. Because I'm not sure that that's necessarily something that any person finds easy to seek feedback, take feedback on, and then iterate. It always takes a hit to the ego. So how are we building up that capacity, not only for our teachers, but also for our students in the way that we do teaching and learning? Yeah, very, very interesting. Now, you have been in education for a while now, Nick, and you've been seeing the secondary education system maybe transform in the last five odd years. So keen to hear how you see education shifting into the future. What are the positive things that are happening, but where is there room for opportunity and and space to really improve? I definitely think the appetite for new is greater now than it has ever been in education. And I certainly think the wealth of research that's been released talking about the skills and capabilities we need to be building with our young people in order to match what the job market is chasing is pushing the system in the direction that it needs to go in. As much as there's a lot of negative things that have come out of, obviously, COVID-19 in the last 12 months, There are some steep accelerations I think we've seen for change, particularly in education as a result. A lot of people that might have been early adopters to hybrid learning or different technology have been forced under remote learning to adapt and adopt new ways of teaching and learning, which I think has actually seen a marked improvement in the way that we've been able to approach learning innovatively. So I definitely think in the space of tech and adapting purposeful tech, I think we're moving in the right direction. I've also seen a number of schools off the back of some of their young people performing better in remote learning question what their model of education looks like. Do we have to have a nine-to-three school day? Do we have to have students face-to-face for every class of every day? Can young people opt into a hybrid model of their high school education where they're in person for some of their classes, but they're actually perhaps learning virtually for others? Can clusters of schools work together to create subject offerings so that young people are collaborating across schools to access perhaps subjects that wouldn't able to be run in a single school due to maybe not enough numbers Mm. being offered? So those are some of the cool things that that I'm definitely starting to see in education. And I think that the challenge for the education system is that it's such a slow-moving beast. And often the core decision-making is made at the top without necessarily the consultation through the middle. I think that's always going to be the challenge in trying to move such a huge beast like the education system. But we're seeing clusters of schools do some really innovative work using technology and also completely reimagining curriculum with the adoption of project-based learning and inquiry-based learning as a vehicle to really bring the real world into the classroom. Mm, Yep, some fantastic insight there. And Just leading on from that then, if we're sort of going to focus the conversation quickly on the students themselves, we have an impact-led, very purposeful student. They have an idea. They're at the early stages of starting their enterprise, Nick. Where have you seen them typically go wrong and what advice would you give to those students? 
there's a couple of probably three key places that I see honestly young people and old people go wrong when they're starting an idea. I think it's often the same value point irrespective of the age of the entrepreneur that's starting. The first one that I would say is the entrepreneur picks the wrong problem to tackle. Yeah. Here at Future Anything, the foundation of our program is our Entrepreneur's Odyssey and it's a series of 10 steps that set students through the process of firstly looking at who they are all the way through to pitching an innovative solution and the first two steps of that odyssey are basically looking at where have you come from and what do you care about because the best ideas are where entrepreneurs are able to catalyze their lived experiences with their passion. So I think the first value point I see is is young people or entrepreneurs in general picking problems that they don't have any authentic experience around and we've got that notion of the heropreneur often a white saviour walking into a a developing country in order to fix the problem that they've observed from afar. Mm. And I think we have to bring people back to looking at, well, what's your lived experience or the lived experience of people close to you? What are some of your passions, interests and strengths? And then how do we design innovative solutions from a deeply authentic place about problems that we know about? So that would probably be the first value point. The second value point would probably be not taking enough time to look at who else also cares about that problem. And that's for two reasons. One, who else is playing in the space that you might be able to partner with or learn from? Mm. And secondly, if you don't understand the landscape, if you don't do a horizon scan of what solutions already exist in the space that you're trying to affect change, how can you ever know truly if your solution in your head is innovative or needed in the space? So I think taking the time to really dig into, well, what's working and what's not and why is a crucial step before you actually prototype anything. And then the third thing that I would say is just launching something quick and dirty. (laughs) The entrepreneur space talks about MVPs all the time, but what could you do for $100 or less to test your idea and Mm. see whether it's worth something? That would be the other piece of advice. Don't invest $10,000 or $1,000 or six months of development in a concept. Once you've nutted down that you're working on the right problem, once you've done a horizon scan and you've ascertained that the idea in your head has a valid space in in that playing field, the third thing would be is how quickly and cheaply can you test the concept to see whether the market can validate it. Yeah, absolutely agree 100% there and have seen people tackle that in a way that could certainly be a lot more lean and agile in the past before Spending a couple of years sometimes putting time and effort to an idea to discover that nobody really wants it. We're running out of time, Nick. So very quickly, I'm just keen to hear a couple of inspiring projects or initiatives that you've come across recently. It might perhaps be students who've been through your programs are doing great things. And then finally, if we just run straight into some books too, what books would you recommend to our listeners? So two questions there for you. Cool. Well, I mean, we have the pleasure of working with a crazy group of young people through our programs that do some pretty interesting things. Some of my favourites are our second place winner from last year's grand final, Michaela, who started the I Am Project. Hmm. And I love it because it's so simple. It's basically just key rings that say positive affirmations on them. So I am enough, I am worthy, I am kind. Because she noticed and, and felt from her own mental health journey and watching other people around her that we were so saturated in negativity that sometimes we didn't have that reminder in our day-to-day about 
us being worthy or some of those other positive affirmations. Mm. So Michaela at the I Am Project, I, I love her story because she's just got serious hustle. This young person just started producing the key rings. She went to her local shopping center and she got a little market stand and she sold out on the first day. And then she built her own website. She registered her own business. She kind of just just went about getting it done, I think. And there's something so inspiring about the difference between an idea and an enterprise is actually taking action. And so Michaela's ability to transform what was in her head to something in the real world is incredible for for 14, when I think a lot of us in adulthood struggle to make that transition from idea to enterprise sometimes. So that's one cool idea that I've seen. And then like our... Look, I could talk about these these ideas for ages. Our winners from the last two years before that were two teams from the Ipswich Corridor that produced different pieces of apparel. So Tanika from a couple of years ago produced the socks and they look like normal school socks above the surface because we've all got those uniform codes to adhere to in our yep. schools. But they've got these funky patterns underneath the shoe that actually is partnered with a graffiti artist to create And the notion of the socks, her shielded socks, are that, you know, you don't know what's underneath the surface for young people with a portion of the profits going to kids' helpline so that young people can access the support they need in their moments of need. Mm. And then again, Culture Food two years ago found out in researching problems in their community that the Polynesian community had higher rates of domestic violence than many other communities. And they were quite horrified in reflecting in their own community at that statistic. So they dug in and created a line of hoodies with the proceeds going to support domestic violence initiatives, get domestic violence victims getting access to support that they need in their moments of need as well. Mm. But I think all of these three examples are super interesting because they're young people that really dug deep on who they are and what they care about and they uncovered a problem from their personal experience that they then work to tackle. And the more intrinsically you feel connected to the problem, the more likely you will be able to overcome those hurdles, I think, in trying to launch an idea. So those are a couple of examples. And books, my gosh, I set myself a challenge every year to try and read 52 books every year. That's a pretty decent goal. Yeah, it is. So if I had to pick a couple of books that have really resonated for me, I think Tim Ferriss's The The 4-Hour Workweek is is certainly not a new book, but it's one that every time I read it, I pick up another couple of pieces of gold that I can bring into the way I do work every week. So I think that's definitely one for me. Company of One by Paul Jarvis is another one that probably challenged my notions of having to scale and what running a successful business can look like. I think there's a lot of pressure on entrepreneurs to go big. And actually that book really brought me back to, well, what's the core focus of the organization and how do you do that effectively? Quiet by Susan Cain, another great one in the sense that it really talks about the power of the introvert. And as an educator and also working in the entrepreneurship space that glorifies, I think, extroverts, a lot of the time, yeah. it was really refreshing to read that particular book as well. So those mm. are probably a couple of my favourites. Yeah, there's three great books there. And some great organisations, startups that you've mentioned too. Who it's, it's been really, really good to be able to follow their journeys too as, as you've worked with those students and helped release those ideas into the wild. So, Nick, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much for sharing your generous insights and time. And best of luck with your crowdfunding campaign for Catapult Cards on Kickstarter too. I know it's coming to an end soon and definitely a very strong idea. It'll be great to see those get released. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Look, the crowdfunding campaign has been heaps of fun. 
to get around. And so if, if you're working in the education space or you're an organisation looking to activate your staff as entrepreneurs, then jump on Kickstarter and search for Catapult Cards and pick up a kit. We'd love to hear about what ideas you launch as a result of using these incredible prompts. It's been fun to chat again, Nick, today, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people, and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below, and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page, and Twitter.